0: Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer
1: exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3pm to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions or if we could be of help in any way at all,
0: then please give us a shout at hello at RedeemerQP.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible Talks Let's listen to the next
1: episode. Look at uh, Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 33. And we'll read through verse 41. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. And some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. And many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Seven words from the cross. First word, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Second word, To a repentant thief, truly I tell you, yes and amen, later on today you will be with me in paradise. To his physical mom, gathered around him at the foot of the cross, woman, behold your son. And to the disciple who he loved, son, behold your mother. And today, the word that has a sense of connection and separation in it, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? I want to talk with you today on the theme of having a broken heart. And maybe uh, you could identify with the many ways there are to have a broken heart. Um, You know what it is when you've uh, been overlooked. Uh, You know what it is to not get your way, uh, to have requested uh, for a series of events and to not get what you requested. Um, that sense that uh, you're, you're in with some people and suddenly, inexplicably, the dynamic has shifted and you're on the outside of what you used to be in. Um, the, the news of something that's happened to a loved one a long, long way away and it's just tough to get to them and you can't really access them and you have something in your spirit that feels broken and you just can't go to them. Um, Some stuff that could be a little more intentionally against us as well. Um, Someone who said, I'm never going to leave you, and they left you. Uh, Someone who shouldn't have even had to have made that commitment to you, and they abandoned you. Um, We we know some of what it is to have a broken heart. Uh, An element to where who we are and our very spirit has been rejected uh, by someone else. Uh, We know what it is to be connected, and we know what it is for that connection to be severed, right? Um, You even give someone your heart, you entrust a part of you to someone else, and if uh, you were looking for a word, that word could even be forsaken. And we live in a city of at least 8.6 million people inside the M25, 8.6, 8.7. I don't know how you actually count that. And then they say about 11 million people actually call this thing home. And if this is us, like in a, in, a, in a community this afternoon, and we know something of what it is to have a broken heart, you can just imagine the damage on the souls of 8 to 11 million people. People all around us experiencing different forms of rejection. People all around us experiencing different forms of separation. And um, what's actually worse than the moment of being rejected or what's worse than the moment of being separated is that moment actually seeps its way in and lays hold of our soul or our spirit in a way and it marks us and we carry a moment with us all the time if i could even submit to you like a way of understanding londoners like the people all around us um people in this town people are pretty sophisticated we have all sorts of complex and very carefully articulated coping mechanisms to to deal with the sense of rejection and separation. Uh, For some of us, it's, it's not even us in this room, for some people in this town, it's how we actually dress ourselves. Our clothes, be it a suit or a nice dress, becomes armor to perform a barrier of separation to protect our own wounded spirit from the people who are around us. For others, we hide behind our stuff. We hide behind our door. We hide behind our walls. We hide behind our car. There are many different ways to have a broken heart. And here's good news on the afternoon. Jesus, when Jesus said this word right here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew in this moment what it is to have a broken heart. And we don't have to sit around this afternoon wondering what are we going to do with all of these bumps, with all these bruises, with all these cuts, and all these scars we carry around in our spirit. Because better than me, a guy who spent a couple of hours this week worrying over you and looking after this, is the text this one testifies to. And he said to God, why have you forsaken me? If you're wondering where can you go with your broken heart, where can you go with the abandonment? Where can you go with the wound? Where can you go with the distance that you feel you can go to this man that this text talks about because he understands? But think about the shift that he would have felt off of us and onto him now. Think about the shift that he would have felt in his own relationship. He began his earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, with the Father tearing heaven apart and saying, this right here, this is my son whom I love, and I am well pleased with him. And the Spirit of God comes down as if it were a dove from the Father to the Son, and it dwells the Son for life and ministry. Well, here he is three short years later, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to know, if you don't get anything else today, get this. Jesus Christ knows, Jesus Christ cares, and Jesus Christ does indeed understand. This is the keystone. There's seven words from the cross, and this is the one that explains the other ones, and this is the one that holds them all together and in place. In fact, theologians, there's wide agreement on this. If you were only going to get one of the seven words from the cross, this is actually the one you would want. This is the one you would want, but this is the hardest one to hear. The sayings of the cross have a way of helping explain and help us understand who Jesus was and what Jesus was real about. But here he is with this word that causes us to tremble when rightly understood, but also when rightly understood brings great comfort to us as well. Uh, Methodist theologian William Willimon would teach and professor at Duke University, he says this, this is the word that holds together all the rest, the word that uncovers the scandal of the words, dereliction, loss, and abandonment. They're words of doubt, hardly the words that one expects from the Son of God, the Messiah, the revelation of God to God the Father. The fourth word couldn't have been the first word, for if it had been, I doubt we would have stayed for the other six. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It takes three weeks to kind of get ready to hear him talk like this. There's something very comforting about listening to him pray to his father, forgive them, and we're happy to receive this. There's something wonderfully delightful about listening to him turn to a repentant criminal or thief and thinking, man, this is great, look, this is for me too. Something heartwarming about watching him entrust his mom to the care of another. There's something hard about this. There's something raw about this. These feel like words of darkness. These feel like words of despair. These are words that get blurted out. These are words that are only said when everything around us is, is shaking. And here, and here he is. Why have you forsaken me? We do well to even consider why do we concentrate on the awful way that Jesus died? Why is it we always come back to this? Um, over the last couple of years of even kind of getting organized as a new church community, this is one of the questions that I've had to answer more than any other question. Um, all for the love of God. Like, I love the idea of a God who's all about justice in the world. Why do we keep coming back to this? Why every week, Jesus being killed in my place, why do we have to keep doing this? You, you could ask the question in different ways. Why, why, not, why not poison like Socrates? Socrates. Why why not a little dagger, sword like Anne Boleyn? Why this? Why a bloody cross? Why an innocent man? Why the cry of dereliction? Galatians chapter three, verses ten to fourteen go on to explain and give us an answer for this. This highly theological. If you wanted to jot that down, but the punchline is this: Christ became accursed for us. And the connection between the awful way that he died and what we really need is what it's all about. Right, so here it is one more time. David read it for us. Many of us have our Bibles open and we're able to see it for ourselves. Mark chapter 13, verses 33 to 41. Um, you can actually find this word as well in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 49. And the actual quote of Jesus himself, you can find the whole thing in Psalm 22. Um, theologians will say, when he when he says that phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually just getting started with what's in Psalm 22. And the way these things are quoted is intended to cue up the whole script of Psalm 22. So you can imagine all of this is present in this very moment. First, let's have a look at the context. You'll notice the context is in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, and it's the darkness. Darkness gathered in. Darkness came around. So you'll you'll notice you'll notice the 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 the, the timing here. Um, it has to do with the idea that the, the the day really would have gotten going. He would have been on the cross at about nine o'clock a.m. Would have hung there up until about three, and the pivotal time where he's on the cross, the pivotal moment of his work is going to be three in the afternoon. So six hours of after being kept awake all night, after being tortured by warriors and specialists in this craft, there he hangs. And he hangs for six hours. And what marks this moment, what marks this word, is that the darkness comes in. Now, there are prophecies from the book of Exodus that are being presented to us right here. Uh, Jesus himself, he is the Passover lamb. And in the book of Exodus, that Passover lamb was going to be taken out and that Passover lamb was going to be slain at three in the afternoon, well, here's Jesus. Darkness now covers the land, and the Passover lamb is finally here to give his life so our lives can be delivered. This is the, the horror of the firstborn son, not a son of Pharaoh, but the son of the father being taken out so we can be delivered. This is the fulfillment of everything Exodus would talk about, about how families were going to have their sins atoned for and dealt with. Um, A father would go and find a perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb and bring it into the home. And the family would no doubt play with the lamb and talk to the lamb as if it were a cute little dog or something for a few days. And, And then the father would have this time on the day of atonement when the father would lay his hand on the neck of the unblemished lamb and the father would transfer the sins of his family onto the neck of the lamb, and then the lamb was to be let out and slaughtered at three in the afternoon. All of these themes are bearing down in Mark 15. This is the moment. This is the event. We will not be atoned for by the sin of bulls and goats forever. God will have us, but it's going to cost him his very son. Zephaniah and Joel, they taught that judgment and darkness are going to be mixed together. So you know the judgment of God has come down when darkness covers the land. And as darkness covers the land, it teaches us two things we need to see from Mark 15, Mark 15, teaches us about the seriousness of our sin and the extravagant love of our God. When you look at Mark 15, and you see darkness covering the land, we realize that real violations are not easy to forgive. And we sit here with our broken hearts and our bruised spirits this afternoon, knowing something about the cost of forgiveness. But John Stott helps us see we we really don't appreciate what's going on here at the cross if we have not thought long and hard about both the seriousness of our sin and the majesty of our God. Stott goes on to say, Our sins are not purely personal injuries, but a willful rebellion against Him. It is when we begin to see the gravity of sin and the majesty of God that our questions change. No longer do we ask why God finds it difficult to forgive sins, but how he finds it possible. As one writer put it, forgiveness is to man the plainest of duties, but to God it is the profoundest of problems. How is a holy God going to reach into the world And to take people who have committed cosmic treason against him, how is he going to bring them home and treat them like family? Our sin's brokenness. Our sin means we've missed the mark. Our sins mean we've offended God. Because of our sin, we deserve to die. Because of our sin, we deserve judgment. Because of our sin, we deserve penalty and bondage. In fact, one of the ways the Bible describes being in sin is being a slave to sin. You're a slave, and everywhere you look, you think this is the right way to go, but you are in bondage. And what's beautiful is Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. He is our victor who comes in to the camp where people are just enslaved, and we can't help ourselves. We just think this is reality. This is all we've ever known. What are you talking about? There's a way out of this. He's our victor who comes into the camp, and he liberates us. He died as a sacrifice to pay for the penalty of death that we deserved, Hebrews 9.26. He died as a propitiation for our sins to remove the wrath of God from us, 1 John 4.10. He experienced death and he experienced separation we see here as the separation necessary that God must have against sin, 2 Corinthians 5.18-29. And through his death, we experience, my friends, redemption from the bondage to Satan. And we are now free to live the newness of life in the Spirit of God. Like a freed slave, it's going to take some time to work out that in our identities. You're legally free, but it's going to take a while for us to live into that fully. We also see the staggering love of God. God is not punishing Jesus because He's angry. God is not punishing Jesus because He cannot get over something. This is the full-scale Trinitarian redemption. This is what a covenant of love looks like. God looks at people who He made in His own image, in His own likeness, who He loves with His whole heart. And instead of asking us to pay the debt, He enters into the place of our debt, absorbs it into His very self, and calls us free. The Baptist theologian James Boyce says it like this, all three persons were present in the atonement according to Hebrews 9.14, Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. This is covenant love on full display in high definition. Somebody might want to wonder, though, like this, this just sounds like that Old Testament God kind of showing up again. Like we have darkness, we have wrath, we have punishment. Fleming Rutledge helps us see the Old Testament God is the one who has come down from his throne on high into the world of sinful human flesh And of His own free will and decision, He has come under His own judgment in order to deliver us from everlasting condemnation and to bring us into eternal life. He has not required human sacrifice. He Himself has become the human sacrifice. He has not turned us over and forsaken us. He Himself turned over and was forsaken. How does the Old Testament God and the New Testament God get reconciled? They get reconciled together at the cross. We see here's God. He's left his throne, he's come down, he stood in the place of guilt and debt that did not belong to him. And he says, You can now apply it to me. Love so powerful, sin so great. And it culminates in a gospel message where the word coming to us from the cross is good news. God wants you. He's willing to do this for you. He loves you that much. He wants you. He intends to have you and he will not leave it to your own decision. He will not leave it to your own ability. He comes to you and he takes you at the cross. So let's consider these words you see what's going to happen next right after. In Mark chapter 15, verses 37 to 38, you have what happens next. He breathes his last. You have the temple, the veil's torn in two. Why is this happening? How do you, how do you go from this place where darkness, the very present of judgment and wrath is now here? He breathes his last. And then across the way, we're on Golgotha. Across the way in the temple, the veil is ripped apart. I mean, visual illustration, like the actual veil was massive and it weighed loads. But you can even imagine like something like this thing we look at every single week we gather in here, like this thing, right? It was torn in two from the top to the very bottom. So his death on the cross, it triggered something. If you like, there was a shock wave that went out from it and things were changed. In Jewish culture, it's believed that a father would have to express his grief in very specific ways. Um, you, see that, you see this alluded to all throughout the Old Testament, but one thing the history books tell us is that whenever a father experienced grief, he would rip his clothes. He would take his very tunic or robe he's wearing, and he would rip it in part. Look at the grief of the father at the death of the son in Mark 15:37 to 38. Look at the father. Tearing his very robe before us. What does this mean? It means the Holy Spirit's been released into the world, my friends. In Jerusalem, the most important city. In the temple, the most important building. And in the Holy of Holies, the most important place, it was believed this is where God lives. And when Jesus breathed his last, after Jesus was forsaken and after Jesus suffered in our place, the place where God lives, the Spirit has literally left the building. The veil is torn through the grief of the Father and through the sufferings and the torn body of the Son. The Spirit is now released from the Holy of Holies and out into the world, where the Holy Spirit now comes onto a new temple, onto you and me, His church, everyone who confesses Jesus is Lord. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We become the place where the Spirit of God now dwells. The curtain is torn. The Spirit is released. We have a new covenant. And it's all because Jesus was on the cross, experiencing the forsakenness that we deserve. He's working out the rescuing love of God right there. And because of the events we see here, because he was forsaken for us, we don't need a temple anymore. We can even worship God in a school hall. And the Spirit of God is now here. So briefly, then, he quotes Psalm 22. How could David have known? He wrote this hundreds of years before. How could David have known this is what he was actually talking about? In Psalm 22, we hear things like this, these these first two verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of my anguish? Read these words with your own battered and bruised heart. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and I find no rest. And you could keep going with this thing. You could get over to verses 16, 17, and 18. Like, Think about everything Jesus is experiencing. He said, Dogs surround me. A pack of billions, billions, billions encircle me and pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display, and people stare at me and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garment." So there in Psalm 22, David prophesying what would happen, and here in Mark 15, Jesus living in the full reality and the full realization of that prophecy. So let's consider just those words one by one. My God, my God. It's a complexity to the way that God saves us. He chooses to hang on a tree. He chooses humiliating public mortal agony in order to have us. Apparently, this God has a more complex notion of power than we have. As I spent some time reflecting on this over the last week, I found myself thinking more and more about Jesus before Pilate. Pilate had a very specific understanding of power and control, his ability to understand situations, his ability to explain away situations. This God in the Bible that we see right here is very different. To achieve victories, he does not use weapons. He's able to work justice, not through sentimental love, but sacrificial love. This God, the Son of God, he was not preserved from life's harbors. He was released right into the greatest harbor of all. You must take great faith then to pray the prayer that Jesus is praying here. It also exposes our prayers. Most of our prayers are... God, give me this. Or God, help this over here. Or God, stand in the way on that. Look at this prayer. Not God, give me this. Not God, grant me that. Not God, deliver me, preserve me, rescue me, save me. In his moment of greatest need, Jesus is asking the question, God, where are you? And this is the one who was so close to the Father who he could declare, I and the Father were One. Now he's praying this. Think about the distance he's traveled. The Father, who's righteous and holy and nonviolent, who's creative. In, in any way, he could bless the world however he wants. The Father sends the Son. The Father, now represented in the Son himself, wades into the harbor. And the Son calls out to the Father from the depths of full despair. It's a Trinitarian mystery that's too deep for words too deep, perhaps even the verbal creativity of the Trinity whom we serve. So the Son speaks to the Father by ways of the Holy Spirit, quoting a psalm. And He says, why have you? Again, it takes about four weeks to get ready to hear this. Why have you? Prayed these prayers in different ways. Stood in here just this last May with the words of Job 15 just seared into the front of my brain. As Elizabeth and I just lost a child. It's like, why, why have you, God? Where are you? It's the, it's the kind of words that, that that sound like though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And it's the kind of words where though though Jesus seems as if this like victimless, this this victim right here being unjustly tried. He chooses to maintain faith and confidence in God. Why of you isn't even a, a tone of accusation, it's that tone of searching. God, where are you? Why, why have you? We seek to explain these words of dereliction, to somehow save God from being who He might actually be. The God who loves us so much, and He is willing to allow the one He loves most to taste the edge of hell in order to bring healing and help in the world. God in Christ refuses to let us determine our relationship to him. He takes it on himself, even though it makes him cry, why have you? So you see the father is one with the son and the power of the Holy Spirit. You see the father, do you feel the mystery of this? The father in infinite love right here has sent the son off to the far country. The far, the, in the far country lived a land of sinners like me and like you. And the father, who's always been very close to the son, the father's now paying up his side of the debt. He's paying up the full separation from his son whom he loves. But we'll notice in this, the son risks separation from the father. He not only risked that, but he risked abandonment and he missed dismemberment from his true identity. The son came so close to us that he could actually absorb our sin off of us and onto himself. And as the Father whose complete righteousness and holiness, He cannot embrace the sin of the Son so recklessly, so He lovingly forbears. He lovingly turns away. And the Father abandons the Son on the cross because the Father is love and righteousness. So it's unthinkable what we see here. This mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons, it is unthinkable what we see. We see a separation because of love. And we want to retort to God, if you really loved, no, it's, it's the darkness that's present and it's the love at the same time. The wrath of God is coming down on Jesus. Jesus is feeling the separation. He's feeling the wrath that we deserved. But it's love that is driving all of this activity. How else will God have a people for Himself? So in this word from the cross, we see what's unthinkable. In this world, love is commonly tossed around in life's great tragedies. We think it doesn't involve risk, it doesn't involve pain, but here it's true glory. It takes us a while to realize choosing to stay there is actual glory coming down off the cross would have been self-serving to him and that would have given us a self-serving mentality as well. Jesus thereby stays there and he proves that he really is the savior. He really does give all and he really does risk all to save. So he says, why have you forsaken me? The son of God has now taken our place. We talked just a few weeks ago about how on the cross, he actually, he didn't just suffer for us he suffered as us now it's happened the penalty has been transferred and judgment is now being paid out why have you forsaken me he did not saying why why'd you forsake them he said why me for them he says why have you forsaken me he's taken our place he's, he's absorbing the abandonment that sin produces He's given us the only way that we can live a life of confidence in the world. On the cross, He voluntarily and willingly, my friends, bowed His head under the power of sin and the curse of God. And friends, listen to me. It is vital that we understand this. The Father did not only send the Son to the cross. The Son and the Father are doing this together. Jesus gives Himself to us with His own hand. He is the freest person in the world when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You were loved with the kind of love that chose to absorb wrath. God submitting himself to God's own wrath. This is one of the most important reasons, perhaps the most important reason he was crucified, because there was wrath that had to get absorbed. So Jesus goes to the cross, taking everything we celebrate at Christmas time. He takes a full human nature to the cross. And he absorbs the full wrath of God into his human nature on the cross. And he carried it to the grave. I'm you just thinking like there's nothing left for us now. He was condemned, so we don't have to be condemned. He was rendered powerless, so we don't have to be re- rendered powerless. He was stripped down, beaten, and treated as a beast, so we don't have to walk around like we're only stripped down, beaten, and treated as a beast. He was declared unfit to live, so we could be declared fit to live. He was declared a slave of sin and more than the sum total of all the sins of this room, all the sins of everyone who would believe. He was treated like this, so we don't have to be treated like that before the Father. So, what happened on the cross. The Son of God willingly chose to be placed under the dictatorship of sin for us. He chose to bear the full condemnation of the law for us. He chose to absorb the full penalty of the curse for us. The perfectly righteous one broke the hold on the powers of death that stand against us and his human nature absorbed the full penalty of the law for us according to Romans 7.11. As Paul says beautifully in a single phrase, God made him who did not have any sin to become sin for us so my friends, you and me could become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 in a narrative right here. So He redeemed us from the curse of the law by literally becoming the curse for us. And as all of this happened, my friends, if I could go back to where we started just for a moment. What do we do with our broken hearts? Take heart, Jesus died of a broken heart. On the cross, the workload of His physical organ, the heart, was greatly increased due to a multiplicity of factors, but primarily this increased and necessary effort to be able to breathe. And you just imagine, like, you ever pulled an all-nighter, you know? He pulled an all-nighter, being kept awake, being tortured through the night, being humiliated to his face, and now he hangs. And he hangs for six hard hours. So it's no wonder to us when he prays things like Psalm 22, 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. It's estimated that what Jesus actually died from was a rupture in the free wall of his heart, which caused him to cry out in a loud voice and suddenly die. And you think there while that's the estimated physical cause of death, you can imagine how this would be the actual spiritual cause of death as well. Looking to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died of a heavy heart. The centurion, this soldier, this professional executioner is watching the whole thing happen. Um, would have seen a lot of people die. He was responsible for making sure a lot of people go out of the world in this way. But there was something about hearing the repetition of the seven words and watching his suffering. When they're going around, the executioner would actually break the legs of the person on the cross so they'd finally slump down and they would die by suffocation. But this professional executioner, upon observing Jesus, he said, Jesus is already gone. So he thrust the spear through his heart, and what actually comes flowing out is water and not blood. His his heart on the cross, for physical and spiritual reasons, it no doubt exploded under the weight of what he was going through. And we have, we, we know something of what it is to be forsaken by other people, we know incredibly little about what it is to be forsaken by the Father. Jesus pointing us to the seriousness of our sin from the cross, from that very position with the heart that's about to fail, pointing us to the staggering nature of the love of God. It's the message of the cross. God wants you, and he gave his very heart for you. Jesus is forsaken so you can be reconciled. And I want this just to wash over you. I want this to bathe you. Specifically, I want it to bathe your bruised and scarred and lacerated heart. Just allow yourself to be washed in the reality of these truths. Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and each and every one have turned aside to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John 1.29, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Hebrews 9.28, Christ was crucified once to take away the sins of many people. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 3:18 Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. 2 Corinthians 5:21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3:13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was forsaken, my friends, so you never have to be forsaken by the Father. Now, I'm not minimizing any pain in this room. I'm not overlooking anything that you have experienced in any of the wrong and injustice that you have been put through. But I do want this to be framed up for you. We will hurt. We will experience pain. We'll experience moments of being abandoned and moments of being looked over, but we will never experience being forsaken by the Father. God has won that for you. And here's where we end. some time to respond to this. And we respond to it in a way you might not think. for many of, there's, there's some mature Christians in here. You've been walking with the Lord for a while. You know these things to be true in your head. The question is, have, they made them, have the truths made their way all the way down and have these become the big dominating realities for your own heart and for your own spirit? We begin thinking, like, where do we go with our broken hearts? Where do I go with this sense of rejection? Where do I go with this sense of abandonment? And what do we do in those moments when it's more than just a moment on the timeline and we keep going, but what do we do when the moment marks us and we're now carrying that moment around with us? He was forsaken, my friend, so you do not have to be forsaken. But the problem with forsakenness when we experience from other people, from kids in the playground to friends at work to somebody who said they would always be there and now they're not, is that forsakenness can actually creep in and it can lay hold of our very spirits and it can start defining us in different ways. So I want you to think, is there any part of your spirit that is actually far from God, even though you've already been claimed by God? Is there any part of your spirit that, that, that might function as a bit of a slave to sin, even though the whole thing's been won and now it belongs to God? Is there any part of your spirit where you're actually carrying around something of what it means to walk with a wound or to walk with a sense of forsakenness and it hasn't been wholly renewed by God? I found this quote in the last week. It's from somebody named Jack Frost. Real name. And he says, When you you possess an orphan heart, you never truly feel at home anywhere. You are afraid to trust. You're afraid of rejection and afraid to open up your heart to receive love. And unless you are able to receive love, you cannot unconditionally express love, even to your own family. You can be born again, You can go to church every week. You could tithe. You could avidly study the Bible and do all the right Christian stuff and still have an orphan heart. And I ask this question across this room with the utmost pastoral sensitivity and concern. Christian, is there any part of your heart that actually functions like an orphaned heart? Is there any part of your spirit that hasn't been totally brought to the cross? And receive this overwhelming flow of the love of God. In a moment, we're gonna have an opportunity for prayer. And if if that's you, there's gonna be people responding to different things. You come up and just let some people pray for you in just a moment. I actually love how prayers become like a real part of this. And there's people in this room, like how they go every week. It's now coming down. I'm, I'm just getting prayed for every week. I, I absolutely love it. But think about it, the son was on the cross to be able to heal the forsaken wound that threatens your spirit, that threatens your very ability to have the fullness of what God has for you. So when it comes down to it, we need the the spirit that got released from the temple to become the spirit of adoption to take us up. We can still have wounds inside of us. They need to be addressed. Our fundamental spirits need to be renewed by the spirit of adoption. That spirit that allows us to confess to God, I belong to you. So my question in here today, Like, are we walking around with something in us where we're actually shielding and we're actually coping because there's a part of our spirit that's just been forsaken by someone and it needs to to receive the love of God which was actually forsaken for us. That's the question. And God says these things. He says in Hebrews 13, 5, He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The context of that is actually keep yourself free from the love of money. You don't need that. You don't need the coping mechanisms that can get you into, I will cover you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When Jesus was sending out his followers on mission, Matthew 28, verse 20, he looks at them and says, look, I'm going to be with you always until the very end. And we say like, man, why is my life so hard? My life is so hard because like Romans 8 says, each and every day we're, we're led out like sheep to the slaughter. This is like base operating conditions. But Romans 8 also says the spirit that you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit that you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And he goes on to say in Galatians 4, 6 through 7, you're also heirs. So the question in here today is, are we living in the fullness of the spirit of adoption that the Holy Spirit gives us that was released at the cross? When He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are we carrying the fullness of what it is to live a life here in London that demonstrates I will never be forsaken by God? And is the overall arc or the shape of our existence with God and our life as His church Is it taken on the fuller and fuller and fuller dimensions of what's offered to us here? He was forsaken for us. So we don't have to carry around the wound of forsakenness. A forsaken spirit being overcome by the Holy Spirit. It's the Christian life. Us with our doubting, sin-riddled, wounded, lacerated hearts, wondering in confusion. Can it really be just this? Could He have really been forsaken for me? Hear the love of the cross. I love you, and I will have you back. So let's pray. Band's coming up to help us respond. Let's just think about the ways that we can respond to this today. Some of us, for one reason or another, there is a part of our heart that is wounded. There is something in our spirit that is broken, and we need to receive afresh the spirit of adoption brought to us by the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffered so we don't have to suffer. Friend, if that's you, just open up your hands right in your lap, right where you are. Just receive the love of God. Opening up your hands is a way of communicating to God, have all of me, each and every bit of me. Take all of me, God. Some of us in here this afternoon we actually haven't come to that point where we realize Jesus was forsaken so we don't have to be forsaken. And you can see the trajectory of your life and it's headed to that place where unless something changes, you will ultimately be forsaken by God because you have not repented of your sins and you have not believed in Jesus. You with your hands open right there in your lap, saying, God, I'm sorry, I receive your love. Thank you for being forsaken so I don't have to be forsaken. Thinking about the costly forgiveness of God. Thinking about the brutality of that love where the father turned his face away and Jesus carried what rightfully belongs to us. Might be a person we need to forgive. It might be a debt that we need to release that's only possible and it only makes sense when God speaks this word to us from the very cross. So with our hands open right in our laps, right where we're at, we just, we receive a fresh, full forgiveness from God for everything we've ever done. In this moment also receive direction for where we ought to go, receive wisdom for what we ought to do next. My friends, in just a moment, um, we're going to stand. We're going to have a chance to sing. Why not get prayed for for some of this? Why not come forward and just let some people pray for you? You don't even have to say something that's happening with you. You can just come over here, let some people lay their hands on you and pray for you. You can even name something that God's put in your spirit this afternoon, and you can receive prayer for that on the spot. You can receive a physical affirmation in a town full of rejection, and in a town full of forsakenness, you can receive a physical affirmation on the spot this afternoon. Somebody having their hand on your shoulder and praying a word over you, you are not alone. And because of what God has done on the cross, you are loved with an everlasting love. Please stand. My Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus needing to respond to you and be in your presence now. So God, we pray that you would receive us. God, we pray that you would help us to receive your love in a fuller way into our hearts for those different parts of us that haven't been fully integrated and taken in by what you've done on the cross. God, we pray your spirit would come and the love and forgiveness would flow and you'd claim even these locked rooms and these damaged parts of us. God, have your way with us. God, we need wisdom and direction for how we're going to live and how we're going to go again. God, give that to us on the spot. In all of this, help us to honor you, to sing these songs that you deserve to hear as we lean our lives on you and give you the worth and the glory you deserve. So, Father, here we are to meet with you and you with us. Please have your way. In Jesus' name we pray.